Happy 4th of July weekend. Congratulations on winning the World Cup to everybody. It was our whole country that did it. We all did it. So we get to celebrate that. Hope you are having a good 4th of July weekend. You get some work off, some time to see some fireworks, have some fun. Anybody go on the party barge yesterday with me, right? Volleyball last night. Who won last, uh, who won last night? I don't care if you were there. I'm just kidding. I'm glad you were all there. It's awesome. So the things that Ryan just announced, the things that we're doing uh, during the week outside of services, if you're new here, if you're new to Austin, if you're looking for family, if you like to have fun, come to the stuff we're doing. We do these things because we want you to find a family here, and so many of us have. And so I was thinking about the fact that it was a year ago that we started our move down to Austin. It was six months ago yesterday that this church launched. And for as many of you to have found a family with depth and support and strength as have in this church blows me away. And we're going to keep growing this family and we're going to keep doing the things we're doing every day of the week because we want you to find family too. So show up to stuff. We want you there. All right? So speaking of family, uh, there is a best friend to us in the house tonight. His name's Sam. He's right there. And... Uh, you're all special to me, but he's more special. And uh, I, this church would not exist if it wasn't for the obedience of that guy. And you're going to find out a little bit more of why through this. Or you can give it, yeah, you can clap for him. Especially if you're in his section, you know. Support your section, back section. Um, so if you've ever asked Doug or Ryan or I the backstory of our faith and, you know, how we got to be at a place where we're church planners and pastors. Um, you probably have heard Sam's name, and if you haven't heard it, you're going to hear it today, and you'll hear it more in the future. Sam was a guy who answered uh, a challenge, a call to start a group of guys, uh, a life group, for guys that were lost and broken in Boulder, walking around campus, uh, living kind of their way that needed Jesus, and we so happened to be some of those guys, and he said yes, and he started that group, and uh, has been a friend and a mentor to us since. Doug and I were his first interns at the youth ministry that he moved from Boulder to start in Laguna Beach, California, um, and so it's, it's special to have him here because this church is some of the fruit of his legacy and his obedience um, to do what God called him to do, and we get to do what we do because he answered it. So thank you, and, and I'll come back to you. I'm not done talking about Sam, but Let's, let's get into this message. So the, the series, Elements, we're talking about elements of our faith, kind of set against a backdrop of a story that uh, is about an element of creation. So we're learning about these elements of our creator and our relationship with him through elements of creation. And week one was set to be water. Doug and uh, Sean and Ronnie back in Denver, those guys, they came up with this series idea. Doug said, you do week one, it's going to be about water. So I thought, well, Ronnie's had a head start on this, and I know he's preaching back in Denver, so I'm going to call him and see what his idea is, and maybe I can just kind of run with that, because it's always nice. You know, when you have an open-ended message, you can go in a lot of directions, and I could spend a whole week trying to figure out which story about water to talk about in the Bible, because it seems like a lot of the Bible took place on water, right? So I call Ronnie, and uh, I'm like, hey, what are you going to do for this message? And he says, um, you do whatever you want. I'm going to talk about Jonah and obedience. And you all are like, great, obedience, so glad I came to church this weekend. Everybody hates that word. And uh, I think there's a reason for that. And so 
I thought back to my elementary kind of Sunday school, you know, memory of Jonah and that story. And I was like, yeah, 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 Jonah, the guy who didn't do what God wanted him to do. So he got thrown into the ocean and swallowed by the whale. And then he decided because he was in the belly of the whale, he probably had made a mistake. So he's like, God, I should do what you want me to do. So the whale spit him out and he did it, right? That's kind of like maybe what you remember about Jonah, which is a really bizarre story. And so I'm like, there has to be more to this because it's kind of hard to just teach out of that. This is a really strange thing that seems pretty hard to relate to. So I start studying the story. I'm diving into it and slowly just resenting Ronnie more and more for this idea for two reasons. One, I don't like Jonah. And some of you are like, oh, can you say that? Such a thing in church? Well, I like, I like the story, and you'll see why, but I don't like him. I don't like the guy, Jonah. And I think you'll agree with me after I talk you through this story of why I don't like Jonah. The other reason I resent Ronnie, well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons, I love Ronnie. He'll never listen to this, so he'll never know. But uh, um, the other reason that I was like, thanks a lot for teeing up this idea was obedience is like a cuss word to most of us. Like, don't talk to me about obedience. I don't want to hear it. And I think that's because we grow up being told, you just obey. If it's your parent, it's your teacher, it's your coach, it's a pastor. If they're in the place of authority, you just obey. Blindly just do what they say because they know more than you, they're older than you. And we grow up kind of hearing that, and then we start to resent that because we see people who force things on other people, and it's corrupt, and it's wrong. And there's times where you're like, well, being obedient to that actually hurt me, and it wasn't right, so we become rebels. We become rebellious. We become disobedient because we, we hate this idea of obedience. It's like a cuss word, and then we translate that into our faith, where then people are telling us, well, you obey God because he's God. And if you don't, you might end up in the belly of a whale. And you're like, I don't, want, I don't want anything to do with that guy. Forget it. No thanks. So I'm like, cool. So I'm going to preach about obedience and try to be encouraging. And I'm going to talk about a guy in the Bible that I don't like. Happy 4th of July. So I wore my banana shirt so that it would be a little more fun. Okay. So I'm going to give you my thesis statement for this message. And a lot of you will amen it because you're like, put that on a coffee mug or something. But you may not actually agree with it. But I hope by the end of this message, you'll consider it and you might give it a chance and you might see that there might be some truth to this. So here it is. The freest life you can live is found in obedience to Christ. Obedience and freedom, don't those sound like opposites? The freest life you can live is found in obedience to Christ. And what I remembered about Jonah is that Jesus references him. And Jesus fulfills all the prophecies of the prophets, but he does not name all of them or quote all of them or talk about all of them, but he talks about Jonah. So I'm like, there has to be something more going on here. So let's, let's get to that. But first, before we can get to Jesus, the good guy, we have to talk about Jonah because of Ronnie. So Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, I'm going to read this, give you some context, and then I'm going to breeze through and kind of give you the overview of the story of Jonah in like four minutes, if possible. All right, so... The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So none of us have any idea what those cities are and that geography doesn't mean anything to us. Basically, 
Jonah was an Israelite prophet. He's a Hebrew. And they hated the people in Nineveh because they were part of the Assyrian Empire, this oppressive empire. Nineveh is this big, booming city of Jonah's enemies, really. So at this point in the story, I kind of get Jonah. I don't dislike him yet. Because I would probably be like, well, yeah, I mean, the, the poor guy, God, you're sending him into enemy territory, into a huge city to go tell all these people, you need to turn from your wicked ways because my God says so. He's like, you know what's going to happen to me? Nobody's going to listen to me. They're probably just going to kill me. So I kind of get that. So Jonah gets on a ship, and he goes in the opposite direction of where Nineveh is purposefully. He's running from what God's called him to do. There's the context. Now I'll tell you the story. Go read it yourself this week. It's short. It's a story. It's interesting. Most of the prophet accounts, they're prophesying, and they're saying all these things. Jonah's just a story about this guy and what he does, and more so what he doesn't do. So, I'm looking at the clock. Here we go. Jonah gets on the ship, and he starts going in the opposite direction, and this massive storm comes. And it's like a storm of the magnitude that the sailors are like, this is not normal. Whatever god or gods are out there, they're causing this. So they all start calling out to their gods, like, please stop, have mercy on us, please stop. And they, they cast lots, the superstitious thing, to figure out who on board has caused this. Like, why is this happening? And it falls on Jonah. Well, Jonah is downstairs sleeping during this storm because he's a hero. And so they pull him up, and they're like, hey, do you have any idea why this is going on? Our ship's going to wreck. This is not just some storm. Like, something's going on here. And Jonah's like, oh, yeah. You remember how I kind of mentioned that I was running from my God when I got on board? Yeah, well, I'm running from my God, and I think he might be causing this. And they're like, well, who's your God? He's like, the, the Lord of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, like God. And they're all looking at him like, you're telling me your God made the sea, and you decided you were going to run away from that guy who holds the waters of the deep in his hand on the sea. You thought you'd just run away from him on something he made. Brilliant. And Jonah's like, you know, now that you put it that way, that is a valid point. So they're like, well, hey, since your God is in control of all of this, anything that you could do to get this to stop so maybe we won't die. And Jonah says, throw me overboard. This is my fault. And we're all like, what a noble guy, you know. Spare, spare yourselves and throw me over. Except these guys are like, we didn't even ask you to come, and now we have to kill you. Now your blood is on our hands, and your God's in control of everything, and he's going to watch us do this. Thanks a lot, man. So they throw him over, and they're like, Jonah's God, please have mercy on us. He told us to do it. And then you picture, like, the storm subsides, and Jonah's just, like, 50 feet away from the boat. And he's, they're like, do we pick you? Well, let's just go. <laughs> See you, man. So, this is the part of the story that we all remember. This giant fish comes and swallows him. And in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights, Jonah's down there and he says this prayer. He has this realization, like, because he's so bright that he's done the wrong thing. Because he's literally inside of a whale. And so, Jonah says this prayer to God and he's not even really repenting. He's more so just recounting what has just happened. He's acknowledging, God, you told me to do this. I didn't do this. You are God. I should do it. I will tell people that salvation comes from you. And so then God has mercy on him, and the fish spits him out, and this oceany guy gets out, and he goes to Nineveh, and he starts telling these people what God told him to say. But you think, well, now he kind of figured it out. You know, like, what more could you need? But he just does the bare minimum in Nineveh. He literally gives an eight-word sermon. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Okay, did it, God. I did my part. You told me to say something. I literally did say something. I did my part. He does the bare minimum. And then the craziest part of this story is that the people repent. 
These people of Nineveh, they hear what he said and they realize we need to turn to this God because our ways are wicked. The king says, call urgently on God to everyone. Call urgently on God and God has mercy on the people of Nineveh. And you're like, well, that's cool. So Jonah kind of got it. Like, well, maybe I should do what God wants me to do and he's going to use me where next. No, Jonah is furious. He's sulking outside the city, mad at God because he just spared the Ninevites. He's, he quotes God to himself as a diss. He says, I knew you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He's like, I didn't try to avoid this because I was just worried about myself. I didn't want to come here because I hate these people and they don't deserve mercy. And I knew if I did, and I knew if I told them salvation comes from you, that they would turn to you and you would have mercy on them. And I hate them. I didn't want that. So you know what? If you're not going to kill all of them, then just kill me. Like, what the heck is wrong with this guy? And God says, is it right for you to be so angry? And then this weird thing happens where there's this plant and shade that God creates and then takes away from Jonah, and it points Jonah to his anger being misplaced and his priorities being wrong. And you're like, and finally, Jonah saw that the city was saved and that God was showing him this creative illustration, and then he got it right. No. Jonah again tells God to just kill him. He ends the story angry at God, and the cliffhanger, God's just like, basically, should I not have mercy on people? The end. Nobody told you in Sunday school how much of a tool Jonah was. Now, you see why I don't like Jonah, right? Because he's a punk prophet who just disobedient, forget these people, never learns, right? He's easy to not like. So then you're asking, well, Ethan, earlier you mentioned that Jesus referenced Jonah. But now that I have been brought to the awareness of how weird the story of Jonah is and how Jonah really isn't a good example, why would Jesus reference him? which is a perfect question for you to be asking right now because that's what we're going to talk about in Matthew chapter 12. So the context here now, this is centuries later. And these people in Jesus' time, they grew up hearing this story. They're Israelites. They know about the prophets. They know the story of Jonah. Jesus has recently cast a demon out of someone. And everyone, all these religious leaders and Pharisees, they all have been arguing about how he did it. And he's evil and he's casting out demons by demons. And Jesus just picks apart their argument and it dissolves very easily because he's the master at that. But Jesus wasn't just here to win debates, right? He's trying to show people what's going on, what's really happening when it comes to heaven and earth. So verse 38, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Granted, he, he just cast a demon out of someone recently. We want to see a sign from you. Prove yourself to us again. So he answers, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He's saying, I'm not a miracle jukebox, but there is a sign coming. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater is here. So Jesus is doing a lot in this story, and we could go a couple sermons talking about all of it. But there's a couple things to pick out. 
from why Jesus is referencing Jonah. And the first thing that you've got to recognize with Jonah, and, and I think that in Sunday school we grow up thinking like the stories about Jonah, and we hear about the Bible heroes or the people in the Bible, it's like, go be like them. And then you're an adult, like, why would I want to be like him? But this story is not about a disobedient prophet. And it's not about whether or not somebody could have been swallowed by a whale. The story is about a merciful God. The story is about a God who is slow to anger, abounding in love. And Jesus is standing in front of these guys as the picture of that. So he says to them, hey, you guys are always just looking for a sign. You're looking for a show. What you don't need a show, you need a savior. And pretty soon a sign is coming, and I will be in the belly of the beast for three days. And when I come back, salvation will be reachable and preachable to everybody in this world. So that we see that on the other side of resurrection. We're like, yeah, that's cool. Like, I see the connection now. Jonah, three nights, Jesus. Okay, we get that. Jesus says, something greater is here. A far greater preacher is here, and you squabble about proofs, as the message translates. Something greater is here than Jonah. This isn't a disobedient, reluctant, prejudiced prophet that's here right now. This is a loving Savior, obedient unto death who says, not my will, but yours, the picture of obedience. And he says, whatever it takes for salvation to come to humanity, I'm in. That's who's, who they're standing with right then. But Jesus, he knows the Pharisees are going to be kind of offended by what he's saying right now because, like I said, these guys grew up knowing about Jonah. And these guys are just like Jonah. About, they're all about who's in and who's out. Who's earned being in a, you know, you're worth God's mercy and who's not? The Pharisees, that's, that's every day for them. That's how they think. And then Jesus is using this childhood story that they all know to, to kind of tweak something in them. He says that the Ninevites will condemn them, which would make them furious. Because the Ninevites were outsiders. But way back then they were hated people. How could you say that? How could they condemn us? We've got it all right. And Jesus is saying they repented. They turned to God and you guys are missing it. What they would know that most of us don't about the story of Jonah, as I've studied this and theologians talk about it, can be summed up in this quote. The story of Jonah, the story is deliberately left open-ended for those studying its message to complete it in their own lives. So these guys grew up knowing this story not as like, well, whatever happened to Jonah? Like we do. They knew. The author purposefully left you a cliffhanger so you would say, what would I do? Who am I in this story? Didn't Jonah figure it out? Didn't he realize that God's mercy was for everyone and that he could be a part of bringing salvation to the world? And Jesus is saying, who are you guys going to be? Because I'm going in the belly of the beast for three days, and when I come back, salvation will be here for the world. Who are you going to be with that story? So he leaves them in this tension, asking them this question. And, and we kind of hear that, and we're like, yeah, those guys were the worst. And they, you know, they kind of were about who's in and who's out. And we kinda, we're, we're beyond that now. But we all have Ninevites. We all have people who we think they're not deserving of God's mercy. Somebody that's hurt us. Somebody who's done something horrific in the world. And we look at that and say, well, not them, God. No, 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 no. We all have enemies. Maybe it's somebody who... Like maybe if you're honest, you're prejudiced like Jonah. Or maybe it's somebody who has different politics than you. Or somebody who believes different things than you. Or a coworker who drives you nuts. I've got two of them. 
my Ninevites are Pharisees. My Ninevites are people who make Christianity seem impossible, who turn people off to wanting to come to church, who put burdens on people. And I've been convicted by this story because they're just trying to figure this out too like I am. They just do it in a different way that I don't agree with. But they're the people that I say, no, 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 God, forget them. I'm not getting lunch with them. I don't want to hang out with them. They've got it all wrong. Don't show them mercy. Those guys are a drag. We all have Ninevites. So we hear all this and we're like, but I don't want to be like Jonah. Because what I've realized as I've studied this story is I don't like Jonah because I can be just like Jonah. I don't like Jonah because there's a lot of Jonah in me. Jonah's this perfect picture of somebody and he's holding so tightly to his view of personal freedom that he is missing out on the beauty of the mercy of God. Completely missing it because he's so stuck in his quest for his personal freedom. My way. Which reminds me of three guys driving to their very first life group in 2008. Doug Ryan and I riding in a car to our very first life group and made a pact, literal pact, and said, no matter what Sam and these Christian guys say that invited us to this group, we will never stop partying. And that is stupid. But what we were really saying, thanks for clearing that up. What we were really saying is, no matter what these guys tell me about Jesus, I will not give up my personal freedom. I will not give up my way. I will not stop doing things how I like them because I'm in college and I'm living my freedom and my truth and I'm on my personal quest to do whatever I want and nobody's going to tell me to be obedient and nobody's going to tell me what to do. So these guys can tell me the good Christian thing, but I'm not going to buy it. That's how we went into our first life group. You're like, man, the people in my life group seem awesome now. Because my picture came from this childhood misunderstanding of obedience that I thought it meant if I go to God, no more fun for me, no more exciting life, no more doing things that I like to do or that I'm passionate about. I have to give all that up and just go be this Christian guy. I said last service that we'd have to put on collared shirts and then Paul was like, you're wearing a collared shirt as you're making fun of that. But this has bananas on it. But seriously, I'm like, if I give up my quest for personal freedom, I'm just going to have to play board games and be boring and read the Bible and go to this stupid Bible study and talk about my feelings. Forget that. And yet something was pulling our car to this group. And something was pulling our lives to Sam. Because he was finding freedom that we had never felt before. And so I'm looking at his life, and when we would both lay our heads down on pillows somewhere in Boulder, Monday night, I'm somewhere sleeping and dreading everything that's going on in my life, feeling more and more death in my life, feeling farther and farther away from freedom, and Sam's somewhere sleeping soundly, freely, because he's got Jesus in his life. He's finding freedom because Sam was showing us that the freest life you can live is found in obedience to Christ. And so we, we kept after that because we started to taste adventure, and it looked differently than we thought. And I don't know about you, but like life with God is this roller coaster of like complete freedom and I want freedom in this and I'm finding freedom in this. But then there's always those things that are like, maybe not this. I'm going to keep doing this part my way, but you can have the rest. And the problem is that the things that we hold more tightly and, and pull away from God and say, no, 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 I know better than you, which is basically what disobedience is. It's saying, no, God, I know better than you do about what I should do with my life. The more we do that, 
the further we sink into death, then Jesus is trying to pull us out of it. So maybe obedience and freedom aren't quite opposites like we thought. And we were talking about different areas of life that have been like the hardest things to let go of. To like, all right, God, this too. I want freedom in this area. And Doug helped me wordsmith it because he's a professional at getting things to all start with the same letter, you know. Very good at that. This is one gift. <laughs> and, it, and the three categories that we came up with, trespasses, treasure, time. Those are probably the three things in church that all of us are like, ah, uh, not quite there, God. I know a little better about freedom. So trespasses, which is sin, which is doing the things that we know that we shouldn't be doing. It's the things we know that Jesus is saying there's better for you in that area of your life. But man, we hold on to those things and we're like, not that. Because I've been hanging out with this thing for a decade. Or this is my addiction and, and it's never going to end. Or this is, this is the thing that happens behind closed doors and nobody knows it's going on and, and I don't want to change that. Or I'm too ashamed. I feel too guilty to bring that to you. Because we have this Sunday school mentality that coming to God with our sin is going to like give him leverage over us. Where he's going to be like, I knew it. You're sinful and you're stupid. And now that you've told me these things, you do as if he doesn't already know. Well, now that I know these things, like stay away from me and maybe you can clean up your act and get closer at some point. That's what we think, being like obedient with repentance and obedient with coming to Jesus with our sin is like. Yet Jesus says things like, come to me when you're weary because I have rest for you. What, what makes you more weary than the sin in your life that is killing you. And Jesus is saying, come to me, I've got rest from that thing. I've got freedom for you. I, I thought of this in worship at the last service. If you've ever interacted with like a, a hurt animal, and all you want to do is help them, you're like, here's food, here's water. And they won't come to you because they're afraid, because they're hurt. And they're like, no, 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 if I come over there, like that, that being, that person, whatever, is going to hurt me. A lot of times it's how we view coming to God with our hurt. No, 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 no. If I come over there, you're just going to hurt me worse than I'm already hurt. And all God's, Jesus is like, no, no, no. I want to I give you living water. I want freedom for you. Treasure. You're like, awesome job, man. You worked the story of Jonah, obedience, and even brought Jesus into this so you could talk about money. Typical church. Here's, here's what I've been thinking about. We, we in this church, I think you all know, we have a heart of generosity. And we tell you when we pass an offering, if you're hurting right now, if there's cash in there, take it. If you need it, take it. We're family. So I think you know our heart. And I think at some points to a fault, we downplay giving and generosity because we have that like, oh, I don't want people, I don't want to talk about money because everyone hates that about church. Because everybody hates getting preached at or preached to about the thing that they hold the most tightly, right? The thing that you want to do your way, you don't want to hear anybody preach about that. You're like, you can talk about everything else. Don't you talk about my money? Because it's probably the thing that you hold the most tightly, and it's probably the thing that you have no freedom from. And so I got up here a few weeks ago at this service, and when the offering slide came up, I caught eyes with somebody that had that same look I always had in church in my eyes of like, here we go, the money thing. And I kind of froze, and I was just like, you know what? We're going to pass the offering. If you need money, take some. And we don't want you here just to give. We want you here to experience God. And that's completely true. 
But what I realized I was doing is downplaying what for some of you is the greatest gift that you have. It's a spiritual gift of giving, of generosity. For some of you, your generosity is the reason that these lights are on in this church. And I never want to downplay something that you are obedient in, that God has said to you, even your finances, be obedient with that. And so you may hear that, and you're like, okay, manipulative, and you're going to pass those offering baskets in worship. If that's how you feel, please don't give today. Giving should be cheerful. But what I will challenge you with is exercise generosity in your life and see how you start to find freedom from money. When I, when I married Steph, we, we made a decision. We're going to be generous people. We're going to tithe, and we're going to find other opportunities to help people in need. And the more we've done it, the more free we are. We're not rich. We didn't get rich from being generous. We live off 90% of our budget or 85, whatever. But we don't argue about money. We're free. Money doesn't have hooks in us because we decided we're going to be generous people. And I say that not to brag to you. If you saw the amount of money that I'm able to donate, you'd be like, cool, man, making a big difference in the world. I say that to you because I believe that so many people in this room probably stress about money every day of their lives and probably hold it like this and and I never have enough and it's never enough and it's never enough and all Jesus is saying is try generosity and see how free you could become. So if you don't want to give here, that's totally fine. Go sponsor a kid. Partner with a nonprofit. Exercise generosity in your life and see what kind of freedom you find. Some of you guys... Have a home church that's not here. You on Sunday mornings, you're serving somewhere, and you double dip and come here on Sunday nights, and that's awesome, and you're welcome here, and there's always going to be a seat for you, and we love you, and you're welcome to worship with us. And some of you come here maybe because you love the worship. A lot of you guys come here because there's 150 single girls in this church. I said this last service, and I'm going to say it especially at this service because it's more of a problem here. A lot of you girls come to this church because you are waiting for God to call Ryan to marry you. And mathematically, if Ryan married every girl that God had called to marry her, Ryan would be the greatest polygamist of our day. But he's obedient, so leave him alone. Whatever reason you come to this church, we love you and you're welcome. Please, please come every week. If this is not your home church, please give to your home church. Support what your home church is doing. Help them to grow. Help them to turn the lights on. Help them to do more things to reach this city. Give to your home church. And the last thing, and this is the one that I hold the most tightly for me, is time. And maybe that's because, like I alluded to, I don't have so much money to just be holding on to and making it rain all over the city. Time, though, I can control that. And I know that I have a limited amount. And man, I don't, I don't have time to like come to God and spend time and, and, and read the Bible or pray. Like, I just don't have time for that, God. I'm sorry, but you know I'm a pastor. I'm too busy I'm trying to make this church run. I've got a wife. I've got a kid. And Jesus is like, obedience of your time. Like, I'm, I'm telling you to, to give me some of your time every day because I want freedom for you. I'm not trying to take something from you. I want freedom for you. And here's how this looks for me. If I start my day, so we talk about tithing money all the time because what God gives us, we're supposed to give the first of it back to him, right? It's a biblical principle. We do not talk about tithing our time, but that is maybe the greatest resource that we have. 
the air in our lungs for however long it lasts is because of him. So if I tithe my time, if I start my day and say, hey, I'm going to go spend time with God right now. I'm going to pray or I'm going to read or I'm going to whatever, have a great conversation, call a buddy like Sam and just talk about what God's doing right now. Like if I'm going to just give him some time to focus on him, the rest of my day, I have a picture in my mind of a gracious and loving, compassionate God who has called me to preach salvation to whoever's in my path that day. That's my perspective. And all the things that I'm worried about and all the things that are plaguing me, man, I'm so much more free from those things if I tithe my time, if I give my time to Jesus. The days that I get up and I get on my phone, I'm looking on Instagram, I'm preparing for my fantasy football drafts months in advance, I waste my time, I rush out the door, I don't spend any time with God. I kind of get to the end of the day and I've forgotten the whole purpose of why I lived that day. We always think that Jesus is like, give me that. Give me that, give me that, because he just wants to walk away and take stuff from us. He's like, give me that, because I've got freedom for you. Give me that, because I've got freedom for you. I'm not trying to take any, I don't need your stuff. I want you free. I went into the belly of the beast, and I walked out three days later to give you eternal life forever and for today. Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Read that again. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You're like, duh. Oh, that's why he set us free, so we'd be free. Brilliant, Paul. If you know that so well, if it's so obvious that it's for true freedom that Christ has set you free, then why aren't you? Why aren't we? It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So obeying Christ, this is what I wrote. Obeying Christ means trading in a failing pursuit of personal freedom held in your own hands for actual freedom, held in the open, nail-scarred hands of the author of freedom, who knows it so much better than we do, who knows that the wages of sin is death because he paid those wages, who knows that our time spent with him is more valuable than any other time because he holds time in his hand, who knows that if we're free from our stuff and our treasure, we can actually focus on him and we can actually go make a difference in this world. He knows it so much better than us. But we hear obedience and we're like, forget that. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to be a rebellious college guy. I'm going to do it my way. The bonus, and I think what woke us up to this concept of obedience, of pursuing Jesus, when we looked at somebody like Sam's life, is this. That my obedience creates freedom for the people around me. My obedience creates freedom for the people around me. So go with me here. Story time. Sam starts this life group. We're skeptical. We're never going to stop partying. We keep going to this group. Something keeps pulling us back there, and we keep meeting up. And then the next thing we know, we're kind of helping at this ministry that Sam's an intern at in Boulder. And all of a sudden, we like some of you guys like wake up and are like, wait, I serve at this church. I hate church. Why am I here right now? What's happened? Why am I so happy? What's happened to me? What did you do to me, Sam? So then Sam invites Doug and I to intern for him. He moves out of his comfort zone of our friend group in Boulder to be a youth pastor in Laguna Beach, one of the most beautiful and toxic places in the country. So he goes there to start this youth ministry, and he's picking through like a college ministry of a lot of qualified candidates, and for some reason is like, maybe I'll ask Doug and Ethan. Those guys have probably read combined like two books in the Bible. They're never going to stop partying. Perfect. Let's get them out here. 
Sam's been one of those people who just sees a future for you that you couldn't see for yourself. And so he invites us out to Laguna Beach. Doug and I pack up his Saturn view. Everything we owned fit in Doug's Saturn view. And Doug drove a Saturn view. <laughs> we get to Laguna Beach. We spend a night there. We wake up the next morning and we drive to a houseboat trip with all these high school kids that Sam had started to gather for a youth group for a week of banana boating, story about water. I'm not too much of an idiot. I know what I'm doing. And wakeboarding. And then every night we'd have services like this kind of up on top of the houseboat. So Sam told us, hey, we're going to do a service every night. I want you guys to each preach one night. Ethan, you're going to preach the first night. I'd never preached before, never given a message before. The only thing I'd ever said to a large group of people was wildly offensive at a college party, probably just yelling something like on a keg, you know? And now I'm supposed to preach to a bunch of high school kids. And so I had heard a sermon about Jesus walking on water, and I loved it. And so I was like, I'm going to just kind of go with that idea. So I'm standing on a lake in Northern California on a houseboat with kids I've just met about to preach the gospel to them. A guy who a few years ago made a pact that he would never do this kind of thing. Getting to preach for the first time. And I tell them the story of Jesus walking on water. So this is in Matthew 14. We were just in Matthew 12. So not that long after Jesus references Jonah, now his disciples are out in a boat on the water. And they grew up the same thing. They knew the story of Jonah. So I like to think that they kind of had that in their minds. They're like, oh, man, he brought up Jonah. What a weird story. And now I'm kind of scared. We're out on the water. And we know what Peter did last night. Like, oh, he might throw us out, and we're going to get swallowed by a whale. So they're out in the middle of this lake. Jesus wasn't with them because he had gone to pray. And if you didn't hear last week's message, go listen to it about prayer. If Jesus prayed, then you certainly should. So the disciples are all out there in the boat talking about Jonah. That's my idea. But Jesus takes a shortcut and just walks out on the water to them. And uh, they, of course, are like already a little rattled. It's like the night before you heard a scary story, and then the next day you're all kind of on edge the whole time. They're like out on the water thinking about Jonah, and they see this figure approaching them, and they all freak out, and they're like, it's a ghost. And Jesus is like, guys, it's me. And they're like, oh, sorry, we just weren't aware yet that you could walk on water. Sorry. Never seen anybody do that before. Jesus is standing out there, he's walking on the water, and Peter, who we love to make fun of in church because he's kind of a moron, yet Peter in this moment, he's like, hey, if you can walk on water and you're out there, I want to try. And Jesus is like, all right, come on. So Peter, stepping out of a boat, takes a step on water, takes a step on water, takes a step on water walking on water. And we love to just take that story and talk about the, the part where Peter takes his eyes off Jesus and disobeys and falls in. We're like, see, idiot, never gets it right. And then Jesus says to him, he's like, Peter, why did you doubt? And we're always like, got him, Jesus. Shouldn't have doubted, moron. Except I don't think that that's Jesus' tone in this story. In fact, I think that Jesus is treasuring this moment right now. Because while Peter may have fallen in the water, Peter walked on water and 11 guys watched in a boat. One guy got out of it and 11 guys were still in a boat. Why? Maybe because comfort, my way, my freedom, what's easier for me? 
was the language they spoke. Maybe they were a lot like Jonah and a lot like me. And yet Peter was like, all right, if Jesus is out there, I want to be where Jesus is, so I'm going. Now, remember that Peter was a fisherman, so he is literally stepping out of the most comfortable vessel that he knows. His life is lived in a boat. And I think something so much bigger is happening here. I think that these guys are being inserted into the story of Jonah where Jesus is saying, I'm going to go into the belly of the beast for three days and I'm going to come back with salvation. Who are you guys going to be in that story? Insert yourself into that story. Who are you going to be? Are you going to stay in the boat? Are you going to step out of your comfort and your way and your freedom and come to me? Because salvation is going to be reachable and preachable for everybody in this world. So who are you guys going to be in this story? And Peter goes on and he sees enemies of him baptized right in front of him. He sees uh, an empire that he's been told to go preach to being reached further and further and further with the gospel. Peter was waving goodbye in that moment to his play-it-safe life, easy, comfortable, my freedom. He's saying hello to adventure and risk and running for the gospel. And I love that he falls in the water because we won't be perfect when we do this, will we? We will take our eyes off of Jesus. We will fall. And Jesus is there to say, hey, you don't need to doubt me. I hold the waters of the deep in my hands. You're not going to sink. I've got you. Keep coming. Keep coming. So what Jonah learned the hard way and what Peter is realizing in this moment is that if God's plan for the world is not in your boat, then get out of it. If God's plan for the world is not found in your boat, then get out of it. And these guys went on. We know the story, right? They got out of their proverbial boat. And because of that, 2,000 years later, somebody like Sam could read their story and say, hey, it seems like Jesus is telling me to get out of my comfort and my quest for personal freedom and my college anarchy. It seems like Jesus is calling me to go find freedom with him. And maybe my obedience is going to cause other people to find freedom. And so Sam starts living that life, and then he invites us into that. And the next thing we know, we get to do things like be on top of a houseboat telling high school kids about a story like this, or in a church that we got to plant telling you guys this. Because somebody was obedient. So I'll leave you with a few questions. What does getting out of the boat for you mean? Who are your Ninevites? Maybe it means going to those people, praying for those people, asking God to change your heart towards your enemy. Maybe it's obedience and generosity or it's obedience with your time. Maybe it's bringing sin, the stuff that is bringing death more and more into your life to him and saying, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want this to have a hold on me anymore. I need freedom here and I'm going to speak it to you right now. I'm going to get with my friends or my life group and and be honest with them about this. Maybe it's bringing something into the light that you've had in the dark for a very long time. Maybe it's realizing I'm comfortable. I just want to do things my way. And I want to get out of my boat and see what God might do in my life. Because the fun part of this questionnaire I'm asking you right now is this question. Who is going to find salvation because you got out of your boat? Sam This church would not exist were it not for you. So what's it going to be in your legacy? What lives, what groups of people, what people groups in the world, what nation 
is salvation going to be preached to because you get out of your boat? The story ends with the disciples worshiping Jesus in the boat because he walked on water, right? And they're starting to realize, like, this dude's the real deal. And Peter walked on water. He's inviting us to be in this with him. They worship this guy who's going into the belly of the beast to pay those wages and bring freedom for the world. And man, I wish that's how the story of Jonah ended. I wish that Jonah had worshiped at the end of that story and said, God, you are so gracious and loving and compassionate that you would have mercy on these people through me. I wish that he had worshiped. So we can insert ourselves into that story and we will be worshipers. We will worship a God who calls us out onto the waters of the deep that he holds in his hands and offers us freedom. We will be a church that has a 12 out of 12 rate of getting out of our boats. So you stand with me. And as we worship, ask those questions. The things that are irritating you that I may have talked about, those are probably the areas that you are the least free in and the areas that Jesus most wants to free you in. So go to him with those things. Be real with him. All he wants is for you to be free. So let's worship.